Hello and welcome to Code Recursive, the people in the stories behind the code. I'm Adam Gordon-Bell. Did you ever meet somebody who seemed a little bit different than the rest of the world? Maybe they questioned things that others wouldn't question or said things that others would never say. Meet Daniel Lemire. You were asking, you know, whether I was entirely sane. And I like to, to think <laughs> that I'm a little crazy, you know. Uh, by nature, I, I will obsess over things that people would just you know, would rather not think too much about it. Yeah, I, th I think it's kind of a personal trait. Daniel is a world-renowned expert on software performance and one of the most popular open source developers, if you measure by GitHub followers. Today, he's going to share his story. It involves time at a research lab, teaching students in a new way. It will also involve upending people's assumptions about I.O. performance. And Elon Musk and Julia Roberts will come up a little bit more than you might expect. The story starts as Daniel is doing his PhD at the University of Toronto. He gets thrown a problem, and the way he solves it sets his career on a different trajectory. It starts when a couple of geologists come to him with a data set that they have generated in what seems to me like a very unique fashion. Basically, they're, they're using helicopters, and tied to the helicopter, you've got a, a balloon of some kind. Between the two, you've got this, this ring, uh, and this ring uh, throws out EM waves into the ground. This is this is uh, fairly standard stuff. And then they, they capture the, the EM waves and they kind of know what to do with them if the data, if the signal is perfectly clean. So the way it's supposed to work is that you, you, you shoot this wave and then it, it, it comes back. And then it's supposed to come back as an exp exponentially decreasing uh, curve. So theory tells you exactly what you should be getting. But what you got in practice was uh, massive garbage. It's it's stuff that you know you, you cannot mm -hmm. feed it into any any computer. So you need to clean it. And the way you sort of want to clean it is that you want to be uh, to build some kind of model for uh, what the noise is. So as a young uh, PhD student, and he asked, "Well, can you help us clean up the data?" And I did, but it was quite a process because they had these uh, CD-ROMs at the time that would you know, I have uh, hundreds of megabytes of mm -hmm. data on them. I would sit down and design an algorithm, and then I would implement it and try it out, and it would like be spinning forever. And so just trying to uh, test it out was taking way too, too much time. Were the geology guys like gathered around, and you're like, I'm going to try out this program, and then it just spins and spins? or Right, mm -hmm. so you, you have this idea. You, you think it's going to solve their problem, and, and you try it out, but if, if it takes, okay, if it takes hours for you to find it out, then it's annoying because of course it slows you down. But it's also, uh, it goes further than that, is that if you want to give them the algorithm and it takes them hours to check that it works, right? They may not do it. And that's mm -hmm. actually what happened in my case. It's, it was too painful for them to, to try things out. So they would say, you know, so so in my case, they, they really put the stuff on, on 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 you know on their desk, and they say, "Well, when we have time, we'll check it out." And I just say, "Okay, fine." You know, I wasn't waiting for them, and then I, I get a call. You know, months later, I say, "Well, we finally got around to it. It was painful, but yeah, it really solves our problem." So you know, where can we go with that? And and basically, slow computing can uh, introduce friction. It can uh, make things that are, are possible uh, practically very difficult. And 
I had this experience over and over and over and over again until I decided, okay, so I'm going to turn my life around. And instead of doing, solving, doing this algorithmic design stuff, I'm going to go down. And mm. I'm going to try to solve this annoying problem of trying an idea and then having to wait forever for it to pan out instead of the higher level problems where that I can leave to other people. So was this, uh, was this geology time, was this when you decided that a focus on performance, focus on like computer science was important? That's where I was headed. So, so basically, being able to run code quickly is a huge enabler. And, and we can go into, you know, why is deep learning uh, taking off right now? Well, you know, it's a complex topic and there are lots of reasons, but certainly one of the reasons for it has to do with, you know, system performance. If it did exactly what it does now, but it took like 10 times or 100 times slower, uh, you know, we, we might not even know about it because it would be too expensive to experiment with it. And you wouldn't, you wouldn't have all these applications coming out because... People would, you know, they would be too ex expensive to develop. It's like, uh, I think it's a quote from from Joseph Stalin. So maybe it's not good to use. He said, like, quantity has a quality right. all its own. If you have enough computing power, like, it, it can be a whole different game, right? Right. And, and, and software that is just a little bit too slow to use can seems unbearable. But if you make it really, really fast, then all of a sudden, it's much more fun. So with this realization that performance can be a great enabler, he finishes up his PhD and he joins a research lab. So in Canada, we have this, this research institution. It's called NRCs. It's like this research-only government lab, basically. And, mm -hmm. and so at the time, they were creating this e-business initiative. My academic career, I would say, really started there. Because it was it was really this this unique environment. So you all have these really really smart people put together in the same building, and they all have different ideas. Mm -hmm. And because it's brand new, you don't have two old guys in the corner run the whole show and tell everyone what to do because mm -hmm. nobody knows what to do. So it's basically if you're young and you have ideas, they say, "Well, go." <laughs> do it, you know. We don't know what to do, so do something. And so, uh, and so, this was this was a lot of fun for me. Basically, we could do anything we wanted. We were free to build the research program we wanted. And so, I really got to try things. I I, I work a little bit on recommender systems. Uh, and at the time, uh, Greg Linden had come up with a, a, the recommender system that uh, Amazon uses. And I thought that was really, really cool. And so this inspired me to, to work a bit on, on, on this, this problem. Daniel's work on recommender systems led to the creation of the Slope 1 family of algorithms. According to Wikipedia, they are the simplest and most performant collaborative filtering algorithms. While at NRC, Daniel has another big turn in his career happen. So I was this researcher, you know, young researcher typing at my desk. And there's this guy that comes in. Uh, he looks like a homeless person. You know, he's got this long hair. 
and he's swearing a lot about not being able to 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 find a place to sit and i'm a little bit scared you know because you're there and you've got this person that looks totally out of place and you're wondering you know are they like going to sleep on the floor or something and <laughs> and but it turns out that it was this really really really, really brilliant guy that could never get a, a corporate job because he's really too strange, but he's excessively smart, very, very smart. And so we, we start talking and he's telling me, you know, soon uh, he's telling me these stories about his vision. And he's saying, well, you know, soon you, you have all these people, like thousands, maybe millions of people taking these classes online and it's all going to be free. Uh, it, it's a little bit on the you know, left side of the spec- political yeah. spectrum. And it's all going to be free. And, you know, I started listening to him and, and this this was very inspiring. So th- th- this was, uh, he was one of the guy who really, uh, you know, uh, shaped my vision of the world because he, he was very, um, I, I think he was slightly prescient. Like he really, uh, he really did uh, predict a few things that did happen. Uh, he did foresee a, a few things because he, he was at the time he was very preoccupied with the cost of higher education, for example, which, as you may be aware, only got worse over time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so he saw, he, he thought, well, okay, so we need to fix this problem. So, so we need to get all of these fancy profs to go online, where anyone, no matter how poor they are, uh, can listen to them and learn from them. So this, this was very inspiring, I thought. So his name is Stephen Downs. Now, you probably don't know him, but he's the inventor of MOOCs, you know, this massive, massive online courses. If you go, yeah. on, if you go on Wikipedia, they, they credit him with, with, with this invention. Is he what led you to go and try to become a, a teacher, to become a right. professor? Yeah, so, so, so I became a professor, and I started, I think, my, I started to build online courses. So my first online course, I think, was uh, in two thousand five, and, and you know, like for credit, like not 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 like uh, not like you you, you build a, a PowerPoint and you post it online, like like yeah. actual for credit courses. And I started basically, except for graduate work, which is different. But I started basically teaching uh, uh, exclusively online uh, at the time. And uh, I did so, like, I've been doing so f- f- for a long time now. So, for example, I've got this uh, introduction to, uh, to programming class where I have, um, I don't know, like something, something like 250 students a year, but it, it, it's all online, you know, and it, it's, a, it's actually a lot of fun. And nice. it's 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 extremely cost effective because there's only one of me and there are <laughs> 250 students. But but it still works, you know. Did you find it hard to to get into a role like that? I grew into it, I think. Now now I'm enjoying myself a lot. Uh, but it was very uneasy at first. I, I think academia is 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 very conservative in a strange way. Hmm. So um, I mean, we like to think about universities as being progressive, and in some way they are. Like 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 you, you like you know nobody cares if you're transgender. You know you're not mm-hmm. in the sense where it's very socially progressive. 
But there are ways in which it's extremely conservative. Like, like for example, the, the, there's a tool that is perfectly fine, but that's called MATLAB. It's a it's programming mm -hmm. uh, language system that's, to my knowledge, is very rarely used outside of, of a campus. And certainly if you go into a data science conference and mm -hmm. you, you know, people will be using Python or R or something, they probably won't be using MATLAB. But if you go on, on campus, everyone is using MATLAB because, well, I mean, to the best of my knowledge, the reason is that their classes were in MATLAB. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so then they're going to teach what they were taught, you know? So you, you reproduce these things. And, and when, you, when you try to challenge the, these ideas, academia can resist you quite a bit. Uh, one of the things that I wrote maybe 10 years ago, or maybe slightly longer on my blog at some point, I, I pointed out that there was a big problem with the, the big uh, academic conferences. Mm -hmm. they're, they're very selective. Uh, basically, nobody from outside academia ever attends, right? Mm -hmm. So they're, they're kind of like bubbles. And, and um, everyone is kind of chasing what is hot. If you look at just the papers, you know that, okay, this was the year of XML. It's all about XML. <laughs> and then it, and it's always, and I say, well, these actually play a negative role because they actually, uh, if you want to do something original, you're yeah. probably not going to be aiming for these conferences. The people building the real system don't show up. It's a little bit challenging to uh um to be a contrarian in, in academia can you think of a specific example of like you know when you were maybe had some headbutting with maybe a department head or somebody because of your different different take on things right so uh, there was something emerging that was called uh, the semantic web i don't know mm -hmm. if people still use the term or it's completely gone now but in, yeah so it basically uh, it came out of expert system and classical AI. And uh, at the time, uh, for all sorts of reasons, I got into this project with uh, colleagues. And what they were trying to do, they were trying to, they were trying to leverage the, the semantic web that did not yet exist, but they thought, <laughs> you know, if Tim Berners-Lee says it's going to happen, it will. Well, it didn't, but... Uh, and then we're saying, okay, the way we should be building online classes is through these things called learning objects. And these learning objects are like objects in, in uh, object-oriented programming. So mm -hmm. they have this metadata and they can kind of all come together automatically and they're like legal block. And at first, I actually thought this all made sense. And then I started asking questions. And then I started reading my friend, Stephen Downs, you know, and asking him, okay, but can you tell me what exactly is the learning object? This is too abstract. Yeah. <laughs> and then he said, well, it can be anything. Say, okay, so we're working on anything. So I started telling people, this is not a good direction. Yeah. And, and, and the irony is that you can go on Google and can find a name. Uh, there's a book, you know, called Canadian Semantic Web with my name on it. I was the editor, but I, I started really, really to have real doubts, and so I wrote a few 
few things about this uh, not being a good idea. I, I, I prepare a presentation about it and so forth. And this was very controversial. Like I got emails like, why are you doing this? You know, And I said, well, we shouldn't go there. And this was very unpopular. And, and some people you know, say, well, okay, you don't have tenure yet. So at the time, I didn't have tenure. So maybe you should uh, you know, be quiet a little bit and, and not, not voice your opinion too much. But I, I felt really strongly that this was wrong. So, so uh, because of who I am, I, I couldn't resist speaking up. And I think one, one lesson I learned from this, it, it's hard to think in the abstract. So I always ask people, you know, to give me examples, to, to be concrete, right? So, so software is abstract. So someone could tell you, well, what's the best way to do X? And, mm -hmm. and they think it's a very well-defined problem. And say, okay, well, give me an example. You know, uh, how much mm -hmm. data do you have? What's your workflow? Like, be precise, tell me. And then you can be smart about it. But if it's the the problem is too abstract, if you if you if you're thinking in, in really general terms, I think that most people, me included, are not smart enough to think in these abstract terms. You need to bring it down a little bit and to really take the thing down and really think in in, in concrete terms. What does it mean? You know, that's why, for example, you've got this this this, this focus on. So software uh, software performance that is uh, basically all about taking concrete systems and getting hard numbers out mm -hmm. of them. You know, I would say it's easy to be smart once you do that, because then you can say, okay, I've got this hard number. I know it's not probably not lying to me. I, I know the problem, and then I can reason, you know, w where this should go. To me, this is a really big insight from Daniel. It's easy to be smart when you can be concrete and precise. And it's really hard to be smart when you're dealing with abstractions. Let's dig into performance, though. Daniel has started to question some of the underlying best practices about performance. So a long time ago, um, when I was doing um, more mundane database uh, research, w one of the problems that, that I was dealing with it was just not a research question. It was just a practical problem. Is that you, you've got, for example, these text files. So say a, a, a CSV file, you know, that maybe mm -hmm. you, you exported from Excel, or whatever, and you wanted to uh, eat them up and and uh, you know and, and include them in your in your program or uh, do some processing on them. And I remember being really annoyed at the fact that it was so slow. So I looked into you know, the best people were doing it. So it turns out that the best people were using multi-threaded uh, parsers. So they were using several threads to read mm -hmm. a CSV file. And that, that felt strange to me because everyone had been telling me the following. People were telling me that the bottleneck was the disk. Mm -hmm. So you, uh, you couldn't go faster than the disk, which makes sense. And so because you were hitting the speed, then the, the efficiency of your code didn't matter. And so I thought, well, okay, we're, I'm stuck because of my disk. And it was really, really annoyingly slow. Like, you, you know, re, I don't remember the exact numbers, but reading a, a gigabyte uh, of data was taking forever. And, you know, it was really, uh, it was slowing me down and slowing down the experiments and so forth. And I was annoyed. And then I started thinking about that and, and chatting. And, and, and then 
a fellow who was really good at this stuff was kind enough to exchange emails with me. I said, well, don't you think it implies that we're not disk-bound? And he said, of course we're not disk-bound. You know, it's a software. We're really processor-bound. Uh, but this was very unpopular. Like, people would not, uh, would not normally say that. So, okay, we have the problem. It seems like this stuff might be CPU-bound. Then what? That sounds like a hard problem. Like, lots of people have built, like, file processing stuff before like it's yes. not like a, a novel area no no it's not so i was telling you that it, there's not enough elon musk in the world and <laughs> and one of the things that elon musk does if you if you listen to him when he's thinking through he says okay so we have this problem here and how good could a solution be and he's trying mm -hmm. to do these back of the envelope thing right so how much would it cost to send someone to mars so let's try to you know, let's not go ask consultants about it. Let's try to figure out from first principle, right? So what, what programmers don't do typically is, is they don't do that. They don't mm -hmm. ask. So they'll, they'll figure out this is slow and this is annoying. But they'll never ask the reverse question is, okay, how fast could it be? Now you sit down, you say, okay, I've got so many bytes, blah, 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 blah. And then when you start asking this question, your 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 thinking switch over, because then it's it's kind of an engineering constraint, right? So I mean, the bill comes back from Amazon, <laughs> and yeah. it's, it's whatever it is. Oh well, but people don't ask. Okay, how low could it be? Now the the important thing about this question is that you don't need to make it that low, right? But it gives you a range. So you know, if you know you're hundred times higher than than you could go, then it gives you room. You you know you you could you could adapt it. In thinking about this problem, getting CSV files parsed faster, Daniel has another light bulb moment. It turns out there's another file parsing task that's chewing up computer cycles the world over. Something that's a bottleneck, whether people know it or not. I was reading about really a lot of data science and NoSQL. A benchmarks involve a lot of, of JSON, and you would attend talks where really, really smart people, people who um, have a lot of followers, were saying, well, avoid JSON, it's too slow. So I said, okay, okay, let's benchmark it. And then I figured out, you know, as it's easily done, well, this is amazingly slow. This is, this yeah. is truly slow. So I asked a friend of mine, you know, uh, Jeff Langdale, who had done a lot of work where he was working on building really fast uh, regular expression parsers. So I asked him, do you think we could do better? Because, you know, I, I look at the numbers and say, this is terrible. And then, okay, but how good could it be? And in that particular case, I did not have a lot of experience parsing, so I turn it on to someone who does, right? Well, okay, and he does exactly as I would expect. He goes into this Elon Musk mode and he tries to figure it out, you know, it should be mm. about that much. I, I took what was reported by several people as being the fastest library available at the time, Rapid uh, JSON from Tencent Chinese folks. And I was getting on a typical five, like, like 300 megabytes per second or something like that, which sounds fast mm -hmm. on th until you, you reason about the fact that I'm hopefully going to get that PlayStation 5, so a game console, uh, this week <laughs> or soon. I don't know. And, uh, 
and uh, and it has a disk that you know exceeds uh, five gigabytes uh, per second. You know, in reading yeah. speed. If you're processing JSON at 300 megabytes per second, you know there's, there's quite a range. There's, there's more than 10x difference between the two. And, and of course, networks are faster. Like really fast networks uh, are, are, can be much faster than uh, five gigabytes per second. So this means that you've got this huge gap. And so then the, the next experiment I, I like to do is I just take C++. So C++ is, is not a slow language, right? It's, it's Consider really fast, and I just use the standard library, and I just call it the the get line function. So it's a function that takes the current line in a text file and returns it as a string, mm-hmm. and I just iterate it through the, the the file like that. And I don't remember the exact numbers I get, but it's something like between five hundred megabytes and nine hundred megabytes. But it, it's well under a, a, a gigabytes per per second. Let's pause to absorb this, right? The standard logic is that disks are a bottleneck. I.O. is slow. But just calling getLine from a file is maxing out one CPU core and only getting like one-tenth of the speed of the disk. So obviously some of the standard programming performance dogma must be wrong. But also, and here's where Daniel lost me, he thinks that based on him and Jeff's back-of-the-envelope Elon Musk-inspired calculations that they can parse JSON at disk speed. That just seems unreasonably optimistic to me. JSON parsing involves, you know, like infinitely nested members. You need to reject things that don't match the spec. You need to understand Unicode. And doing that all at over 10 times the speed that C++ can read a line, it just sounds like it's not possible. So when you look at that, you will think we're dead. Like there's no way we can parse a JSON file at anything close to the disk. Like we're dead. There's, there's no way to do it, right? But if you look at, at the architecture of my last little test, what it does, it creates a new little object, a string, that contains, mm-hmm. so it does an allocation, it, it creates a little, little object, it populates it, then it throws it away. It's extremely wasteful. Even though it's like three lines of code, it, it looks efficient, it's, it's terrible, right? So there are a few rules that people who, um, who focus on efficiency uh, learn uh, and that they, they all share. Like, this is not my fa- finding. Like, this is... Uh, so basically, you try to avoid uh, allocation. I mean, you need memory at some point, but then you do it in big chunks. You don't go through a document and then, oh, I've got this little string with the, with the word uh, name in it. Oh, let's allocate this little string there. And, and let's put it there. This is terribly slow. You, you, you don't want to be doing this. So that's the first trick in Daniel's toolbox. Don't allocate memory unless you really have to. And when you do, like, allocate a big chunk. A, a common pattern that people use is, is that they have this data structure there, and then they build something like an iterator, right? So, so they access it through some high-level API, and they say, well, this is nice because it's really abstract. And then it's going to make my code very beautiful. But this is like basically drinking beer from a straw, which is fine, you know, because the deterrent is kind of a straw. But you're never going to win any beer drinking contest. Like you're not, if you're out yeah. with your friends at the bar, you're just not going to, uh, you're just not going to drink many beers at this rate, right? 
But the straw is this insurrection is really, really elegant, but at the same time, it's going to block you all the time. This is the second trick that Daniel has. Don't use too many unnecessary abstractions. Stay low level so that you get the full performance. The next trick is the one I think I'm least familiar with. And this one is about parallelism. So, so when people think about parallelism, doing things mm-hmm. in parallel, they always think, oh, he means like several cores. But yeah. actually with a single core, modern core, you've got plenty of parallelism. First of all, uh, you can execute in real code, you can execute at least like three instructions per cycle and you can reach higher. Right? Oh. But, but it, this is one instance of parallelism, but they can do, there's other levels of parallelism. For example, there's memory level parallelism where uh, you can, um, so you may have this mental model where your processor requests a, a byte of memory somewhere mm-hmm. and then it gets it back and then it requests another byte of memory and gets it back. But of course, it doesn't work that way at all. Actually, the way processes work is that they can issue multiple uh, memory requests at a time, easily 10, but we've benchmarked like much wider than that, like uh, 25 or something. Like the the something like the um, uh, the uh, the Apple processors, they're incredibly wide. What you should derive from this is that if you can tell your processors, uh, your processor, you, if you can tell it what to do. In such a way that it can just go and all and, and do it all without having to wait for results. So there's no data d- dependency. It doesn't have to wait for this part to be done before doing this part. So if you can mm-hmm. avoid these data dependencies, and if you can avoid the bad uh, branches, then you can go really really fast. So y- there are ways to break data dependencies, and there are ways to break the, the branches. The branches are bad because the way modern processors work is that they, they have all this this amazing parallelism, but then when they get to a branch, they don't know which way to go. They don't know whether mm-hmm. it's left or right. And so they're going to guess. Yeah. And, and, and most of the time they're right, but when they're wrong, then they have to undo all of the work they've been doing yeah. right? and, 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 and come back. So the cost can be enormous uh, if it's done poorly. So you have to engineer your code so there are as few branches as possible. So you have to you basically want to write your code having a mental model of the machine. You see this line of code here and this line of code here, and you want as much as possible for the processor to be able to run both of them at the same time. If you think this way, then a lot of code becomes can become really, really much faster. Oh wow. What was the end result once you applied all this. So the story is that we reach two, three, and some cases four gigabyte per, per second. So so we're uh-huh. not we're not yet at the disk, but here's the fun. Close. But here's the fun part. I think we can reach the disk given uh enough clever work. But it just it's just uh, like writing good code that takes time. So so and I don't know if I'm going to be the one breaking the like five gigabytes per second barrier. Uh, well, it would never be me alone in me in any case. But what I'm saying is that uh, I think people will like yeah. uh, if if not this year and if it's not me, uh, if not this year, next year or in two years, like like we're going to see parsing probably like five gigabytes per second in in, in the future. 
you know, from and, and I gave you like the the strongest competitor, which was uh, Rapid JSON. Now now there are much faster uh, alternatives. Now, after after Cindy JSON came along, then some other people learn, I guess, a bit from us, and, and they go faster than Rapid JSON. But at the time, this was the fastest competitor that there was. Really, there was per- correct like there was parsing everything without uh, without breaking any rules. It was really, really mm-hmm. fast. It was much, much, much faster than some popular alternatives. So this means that the gap, we're talking about, you know, like 20 times, 30 times faster than some, 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 some other options. So it's really interesting to think that as we're sitting on all this uh, software architecture, we think, because we're working with this old thing, that they must be like as fast as they can be. But they're probably not. It, it would be a, a bit like being in 1980 and driving a car and thinking, well, my car cannot get much more fuel efficient. I mean, we've been working on engine for like, uh, you know, for, for a century or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is as well tuned as it will be. But of course, now our cars are much more fuel efficient than they were. And so the same is true with software. There are hard limits, but we're very often quite far from the hard limits. And so software is like that. There's lots of things that we, we accept that are actually atrociously inefficient. So Daniel questioning assumptions about Disk.io led him to create the fastest JSON parsing library in the world. It was 20 to 30 times faster than some popularly used libraries. But that's not all. His work on bitmap indexes is being used in much open source software, including Git, Spark, and Elasticsearch. He created a hashing algorithm that's in TensorFlow. But always questioning assumptions and not being afraid to ignore the rules has not always made life easy for Daniel. Let's go back to when he was in kindergarten. So, you know, so they expect kids to learn to count uh, up till, you know, some numbers, say one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, ten, or something. And, and uh, see, I see, I got it wrong, I think. And they ask you to memorize your phone number. And you have to tie your shoelaces. So these are kind of cognitive tests, you know, that you have to pass to be considered a a normal human being. So, of course, I I did not memorize my phone number. And to this day, if you ask me my phone numbers, I'm quite poor at it. I certainly don't know my office uh, phone number nor my uh, cell phone uh, number. Then, as far as counting goes... uh, I figure, you know, I was five years old, and so <laughs> I could count until five, and that was pretty, you know, that was good enough. So, <laughs> so, and, and then my shoelaces. Well, to this day, uh, and this is a true story. Like people will see me walking downtown Montreal, and they'll they'll say, "Well, you, you, your shoelaces aren't done." And I'll say, "Oh," and and then I'll go and try to do something about it. So, so the the story is that they, they decided I wasn't very smart. So they put me into uh, this special ed class, you know. Did your parents sit you down and say you're going to be switched classes? Or do you remember the experience? Well, yeah. My mother uh, is a, well, was a teacher, now she's retired. And so t- this was very embarrassing to her. Because obviously when you're a teacher, you want your kids to do really well. And, and if mm-hmm. you're a, a primary school teacher then you want your kids to do really well in primary school. And I did do well, by the way, right? And in the end, my, my grades were good. But this was a little bit of a, a struggle with my mother, who 
Well, you know, our parents are sometimes, you know, they, they want you to succeed. So so basically they want you to say, well, sh- you know, stop asking odd questions and just do what you're told. <laughs> did they, you know, did, did they think that you had a learning disability? Okay, so that's interesting because, yeah, yeah, yeah they definitely thought that, that I had a learning disability. It was this, the 70s. And, and so... It wasn't at the level like like now. Basically, at least in Montreal, you you, you have something like twenty percent of the kids or, or more, you know, who have um, a label as being having having some kind of disability. And but it wasn't like that at all in, in the seventies. So at the time, schools were f- at least where I live, sc- schools had uh, easy access to. S- a psycho a kid uh, a psychologist and, and so forth which i'm told now is 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 much more difficult but at the time you know so i would see this uh this nice lady who would uh uh run tests by me and so forth and um they did consider that had a learning disability whether or not the school gives him a label a 5 year old who refuses to learn to count past 5 because he doesn't see the point of it is unlikely to follow a conventional path in life one thing that's unconventional about Daniel is when he's writing code, he tries to think of what communities might use it. He writes code thinking about adoption first. So the same way if I want to go to China and reach out uh, to people, I've got to speech, speak their language. And I think it's the same, same kind of approach uh, with software is that if you want to reach out to software, uh, to Java programmers, uh, you might have the nicest Rust program or nicest <laughs> Rust library you want. They won't pay attention because you're not speaking their language, right? So you have to reach out to uh, to people, and you have to uh, write in their language. And, and that's why actually I use I try to learn and use the most popular languages. Uh, so so I've, I've taught myself, of course, you know, JavaScript, Java, Python. Uh, C, C++. I, 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 I've done less Rust because until recently, Rust was low in, in popularity. Uh, but of course, now mm-hmm. it's, it's becoming more popular. So, so my, my stance uh, has changed on it. Uh, so not, now I'm happy to do Rust when, when needed. So uh, yeah, so it's a matter of reaching out to people. When did you decide like the shipping, like shipping code was important? Well, this relates to another um, good friend of mine, you know, that I met at NRC. His name is Martin Brooks, and Martin Brooks gave this talk at NRC at one time. He, 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 he said, "Well, okay, uh, we're at this government lab, and we're doing research for, you know, for the world, but for the Canadian public and so forth. That's that's our mission. We're trying to make the world better, and we have this model where uh, we do this research." research then we do some kind of prototype, maybe. And then he said, and then we throw it over the wall. So, you know, this this is wall, right? And you throw it over and you hope someone is there to catch it and run with it. But actually, if you go and you, you know, you tilt your head and, and you look behind the wall, you see there's nobody there catching anything. Nobody cares, right? And he says, well, this is broken. And you know what happened when he was giving the stock is that I was sitting there and I thought, oh, this is really smart. And I was taking notes and people were leaving. Oh, really? One by one. Yes. Because this was very upsetting. 
this was very upsetting to people, being told that their model of research does not work, that actually publishing papers, like, like, like don't get me wrong, like I'm not against publishing papers, quite the opposite. I think more people should be, including all sorts of people should be writing research papers. It, this is super important. Uh, apparently, even Elon Musk wrote a research paper uh, a few years ago. So, you know, <laughs> so it's, it's a true story. But uh, but more people should be writing papers. But but you shouldn't just write a paper, and uh, especially with the style that we have now in computer science in, in 2020, where, where uh, com- papers are hard to read for all sorts mm. of complicated reasons. Like if you go back to uh, Turing in the 50s or or even you know the beginning of, of, of computer science in the 70s, you, you can pick up these papers today and they're quite readable. But now they're often very very hard to read. So you know um, if, if you hit the right topic and uh, you're somewhat famous uh, or something, or you know people who are famous, your paper might get cited a lot. But that by itself does not mean you've achieved anything because it's just like it's like being cited is kind of like having stars on GitHub or something or having followers on Twitter. It's not mm-hmm. by itself an accomplishment. It's not, you know, this is just, this is vanity stuff. It's not, it doesn't, yeah. you know, it doesn't change the world. It, it, it doesn't really matter. And, uh, you know, and, you know, maybe, maybe Twitter terminates your account and all of this, the followers are gone. I don't know. <laughs> you know, no, but it's really virtual, yeah. right? It's, it it doesn't mm-hmm. really matter. Um, so, so if you want, if you want to really have an impact on the world, you, you have to reach out to people, to, to practitioners. The way Daniel reaches out to practitioners is centered around collaborating with people on GitHub. It really transformed the way I do research because now I can, um, I can write code. I can interact with really, really, really smart people that I would never have access to. You know, just this morning I was interacting with you know Russian programmers who, who, <laughs> who you know, they, they look at an algorithm of, that I wrote and they say, "Well, it's really nice, but uh, we have to focus on this other aspect of the problem, and we think it could be improved if you did this, this you did this instead." And I'm like, okay, yeah, so it's super interesting. So this interaction. Uh, just wasn't possible before. The way I do research, I, I think it's a successful model, but it's not a model that people can uh, readily uh, um, adapt, you know, because it, it really fits what I do very specifically. Now, for the people who do like semantic web and so forth, uh, they've been doing like open source software and so forth, but um, because there are still people working on the semantic web, and they probably don't like me very much if they're listening to you right now. But <laughs> but, but but very often uh, there's like this fake open source thing, and uh, if, 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 even large companies have been guilty of it, where you know you, you take this thing that you've built and you just dump it on the internet with the source code and say, "There, it's open source." I I, I think I think. Microsoft now understands, but I think at, at some point they were doing things like that, that you know, mm-hmm. they, they would call open source, but really they were missing the social component, which is the most important part, you know, because open source is really not about the code. It's really about the interaction with the people. It's, re- it's really a social thing. This is why Daniel is known for his code, 
because he embraces the social nature of open source. His JSON parsing library isn't really his. He's the top contributor, but he has 68 other people working with him on GitHub. He embraced the radical ideas of Martin Brooks that, you know, people in academia should collaborate with people outside of it. Actually, he also ran with the ideas of Stephen Downs, embracing remote computer science education back in 2005. There's one story I want to revisit, though. I don't know why I keep going back to this early school days story, but I, I stuck in my head. But like when somebody, when I feel like somebody, you know, missed, missed treated me or misjudged me or something right i think of like like pretty woman do you know this movie mm-hmm. of course yeah and like they don't let her shop at that store yes. it's like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> like have you ever wanted to like run into your grade four teacher while you're like accepting an award and be like <laughs> no 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 i mean it makes for a great movie scene but i think it's not quite healthy you know mm. i i think it, it Paul Graham had, had, had an essay re- recently about, I think he called it the privilege of, of, of orthodoxy or something like that. And, mm-hmm. and so his, his take is basically, if you tend to, to easily think like most people in a group, mm-hmm. then you, you, have, you have this thing that he calls a privilege because you're never going to be uh, challenged very much. And people are going to say, "Well, you're fine. You're you're you you one of us, and, and it'll be fine." If you're a little bit by nature, a little bit more prompt to ask more questions and to be less less quick to to adapt the majority opinion, then then I think you're going to be always flagged as something, someone who has. It was a little bit strange, and in schools, being strange is 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 not always a good thing. Obviously, you know, people they, they, they like to believe simple things that are being given to them, and and I think that that goes contrary to what, for example, science is. So you need to be able to to go against the grain, at least selectively. I don't recommend, you know, marching in the street, you know, refuse to wear a mask at Walmart or something, you know, that, that, that's not what I mean, you know, uh, uh, I mean it in a more like intellectual manner, so, you know, yeah. where, where, where you're willing in a company, not necessarily to challenge your boss, but, you know, asking questions, you know, like, should we be doing this? Why, why, why do we do, do this? The scientific paradigm is about, you know, always asking another question. No matter where you are, you always want to be challenging to, um, the state of knowledge. You always want to find where the frontier is. So that was the show. I hope you found Daniel as fascinating as I did. I think he's quite a character. If you liked this episode, do me a huge favor and just tell somebody else about it who, who you think might like it. Just, you know, ping them on Slack or WhatsApp or however people communicate these days. This is Adam Gordon-Bell. Until next time, thank you so much for listening.